as I get to know more of you <clears throat> and hear a little bit about your stories, I know that many of you left places like China and Hong Kong. You may have come here with a family. You may have came here as a young adult. You may have brought some resources and money with you. You may have come with very, very little. But in one way or another, many of you um, took a risk and left what was home and family, security, what was known, so that you could enter into a new life in Canada. Uh, Harriet and I came to Canada 44 years ago, in July 1968. We were three weeks married. We did not have a church position or a church job to come to. I'd been a student all of the years up to that time, so I had no money. And we had spent pretty much all of the money we had on our plane fares. We had $200 between us. We had a suitcase each. And we got on a plane and we just came and landed in Toronto. I've often thought that there's a fine line between faith and stupidity. I'm not always sure we'd be on the right side of it. But we came. But in those first days of our marriage, we were willing to take a risk. And we were willing to risk whatever security of home and family we had. And sort of, as it were, come to Canada and try this new land. And many of you have done the same. When Jesus calls us to experience his kingdom, he does something of the same thing. He invites us to take a risk. He invites us to leave what has been safe, what has been known, what seems to be comfortable or familiar, and to plunge into some new territory. As Grace prayed for us this morning, you realize it's the new territory of the heart. It is the land inside us. It's what we were um, singing about this morning. Knowing Jesus is the best thing of all. It's the new land of the heart. That is what Jesus invites us to. Sometimes we think that God's truth is, is really hard to understand. That it's far, far above our heads. My sense is that most of the time it's not. Jesus gives us truth that is actually quite simple. Not simplistic, but simple. It's not complex. It's straightforward rather than complicated. It doesn't lie far above our heads after all. The problem does not lie in the fact that we don't understand it. But rather, I think our problem and our struggle, folks, is that we are unwilling at times to embrace it. We're unwilling to take the risk of just embracing it and seeing where we'll take us this morning, I hope, um, that we were able to do that. And no longer just paddle in the shallows, but just plunge into some, something of the deeper life of God for us and into His kingdom. Remember what His kingdom is. It's not a place. His kingdom is the reign and the rule of God at work in our lives. It is praying the Lord's Prayer, Father, may your kingdom come. Which means may your will be done on earth in here, in this place, in my life, as it is done in heaven. That's the priority of Jesus. And I really believe, as I shared with you last week as we started this series, that it is the most important message of Jesus. And several times in these conversations with people, when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he uses a little word to introduce the experience of the kingdom. The little word is unless. Unless you leave Hong Kong or China and enter Canada, you won't see the new land. Unless you leave Scotland and Glasgow, you won't see the new land. Unless you let go of something, you will not enter into the land of the kingdom. And so this little word, unless, is a prerequisite that we need to work through 
if we're going to enter into the experience of the kingdom of our Let me do that with you this morning. You'll need your Bibles a little times as we go. I'll give you some verses as we track. And I call this this morning what we might call kingdom qualifications. And it's this, we're ready to experience the, the kingdom of God in our lives when we stop playing religious games. That's important. <laughs> That's kingdom qualification one. You know, Jesus spoke his strongest words to a group of people called the Pharisees. They were the ones who knew every detail of the law. They were the religious Taliban of the day. They watched every movement and criticized every action, but failed to see its meaning in their own lives. They were experts at legalism, externalism. They knew all the right words and phrases, but they were playing the most dangerous game of all for Jesus. They were playing a religious game. And you find this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, that unless, there's that little word, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, of the Pharisee that teaches the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the unless. The kind of people that Jesus is confronting and challenging here are people who put on a religious show on the outside. In fact, they know that they can look better than anyone else. But on the inside, they really know nothing of the life and the power of God. What Jesus is challenging is legalism and externalism. It's ugly. Because it judges people by their outside appearance, by how they look. And legalism fails to look into the heart. Legalism lives by a list of rules and regulations. Some of them are visible and many of them, frankly, are invisible. Sometimes they're unspoken. But it becomes the test and the mark of who is spiritual and who is not. It is seductive. Because it lets us off the hook with the appearance of what is spiritual. Maybe far from the real thing. Um, I remember I had an old aunt in Glasgow. Very lovely lady, is Christian. Told me once that she traveled every day into the city by, uh, to go to work. She saw this lady in the bus and she said, I just, I just kind of know by the look of her that I know she's a Christian also. She just kind of looks like one. And one day I planned to talk to her. So about a week later, we were talking again, and, and she said, did you talk to that lady in the bus? She said, no. Okay. She said, the next day, I was sitting opposite her, and the lady lit up a cigarette. And I just knew that she, she, she could not be a Christian then. You understand that? That's legalism. It's saying that we simply judge people by their appearance. Now, the Bible's clear. That there's some things in life, no matter what culture or time we're in, that Christians should not be engaged in. Many of those are moral convictions and expectations about our faith. They're unambiguous. They're unmistakable. There's a clear biblical list of things we might call black and white. But there's a lot of stuff in the gray category, not moral issues. So there's some social things. We'll look at those a couple of weeks from now when we look at the kingdom. What would happen in our lives if we could peel back the outside layer of our lives and see really what was inside, what was underneath? Are we really the same people at home and at work as we are dressed up for church on Sunday morning? Would people where you work or at school be surprised to see you here at Vancouver Chinese Baptist Church on Sunday morning saying, I didn't know you went there. Appreciated what Winsome asked us to do right at the very beginning um, of our worship this morning. To listen to what we sing. To listen to the words of commitment. 
And what did you say, Winston? May we mean what we sing this morning? Remember how we began? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my, my time, take my arms, take my feet, take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Did I really mean that on the inside as I sang that this morning? Did I really mean that knowing Jesus is the best of all? You know, we need to examine the, the honesty in some of our Christian traditions and ask, are we filled with inner reality? Or am I just going through the motions on the outside to look good? Jim Houston, who was the principal of Regent College here in Vancouver for many years, writes in one of his books, he says, The tragedy of so many socially compliant Christians is that they have so little knowledge of God that they invest, taboos, they invest in taboos and prohibitions to give them identity as Christians. you understand what he's saying? They're saying that their identity as Christians comes simply out of the things that they, they do or many of the things that they don't do. In other words, the only way they know they're Christians is by these list of things that they keep. And when we impose taboos and prohibitions on other people, when we move them from ourselves <coughs> onto other people, that's what breeds legalism. And that is an ugly cancer in the church. It is unadulterated ugliness. So does that mean we just throw everything out? We throw out Christian morality and we abandon everything as a false front? Do we give up the expectations of morality as being mere externals? When people do this, that's not freedom at all. It is merely carelessness. That's why Paul says in Galatians, the whole, excuse me, the whole book is about this. He says in Galatians 5, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Martin Luther, by the way, that's not Martin Luther King. That's Martin Luther out of the Reformation, 1600 and something. Just so you put him in the right century. Martin Luther said, freedom is not the right to do what we want, but it is the power to do what we ought. So we don't abandon this outward appearance, because, but rather our search is not for something looser, more careless, but rather for something deeper. It is for a new internal power to take hold of our lives. That's what we're truly hungry for. And in the book of Jeremiah, this is called the law which is written on the heart. It says in Jeremiah 31, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And here's what we need to grasp. When some new law, when some new power, when some new dynamic takes hold of our heart on the inside, it'll work its way out and its appearance in our lives may look exactly like that as legalism. We do the same things. In fact, this new power may demand even more of us. But the reason has radically changed. We do no longer do these things simply to impress people. To look good. Or to say Christian words. But now we live and appear on the outside by what is being prompted and moved from within us. That's the law which is written on the heart. <laughs> That's what Jesus means when he says our righteousness. Our right living from day to day needs to exceed that 
of the mere legalist. We live far, far beyond what appearance would want. As Christians, we like to say that grace is cheap. That grace is free. Grace is free. But it's not cheap. Grace demands of us when duty would not dare ask of us. And when we get to that kind of thinking in place in our lives, Jesus says we're qualified to experience the kingdom. You there? Here's another unless. We are ready to experience the kingdom when we're open to the life-changing power of the Spirit. If you have a Bible, an iPad, something this morning, turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, a well-known conversation with a man called Nicodemus. They're talking about what it means to be born again. And in verse 3, we get a couple of unless, unless words in this passage. John 3 and 3. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus asks, how can a man be born again when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus, verse 5, I tell you the truth. No one can enter into the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Remember, the kingdom of God is both present and it's also future. So when he says, you can't see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, that is both a here and now thing and also it's a future thing to come. Now what, what, is, what does it mean in this classic conversation with Nicodemus about being born again? Um, Sometimes it's used to introduce people to the necessity of new spiritual birth. I'm not disagreeing with that. Uh, there's some different ideas about the comparisons between water and spirit. Understand that? Some see this as a reference to being baptized with water and then to be baptized with the spirit. I understand that view, but I'll tell you honestly, I don't agree with that. A very common interpretation is that there's the interplay here in this, di- in this dialogue between the ideas of natural birth, which involves water and mass and stuff, and spiritual birth. Could be, mm, kind of say to you, I don't think that's the best. Here's another line of thinking. Nicodemus was a man who believed in God. He was a skilled teacher of the law, and remember that means he would know the Old Testament very well. What he did not understand was the work of God's Spirit. What that was really about up to this point, that had eluded him. He knew all the right answers to things, but the power behind it had eluded him. And while birth is a miraculous event, its purpose is really life. And while it's wonderful to stress the work of the Spirit in spiritual birth, the real work of the Spirit in our lives is spiritual life and growth. The new birth is not just to be saved from hell and getting our ticket to heaven one day. The ongoing purpose of the new birth in God's Spirit is a changed, cleansed, transformed life through the ongoing power of the Spirit at work in us. Nicodemus would know what Jesus was referring to. And there's a context behind this passage. You get it actually out of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Let me read you a few verses. For I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and keep careful to keep my laws. 
That's the promise of God to bring the nation out of exile, to give them a new heart, to put the power of the Spirit within them so that their lives, their whole lives, would honor God. Nicodemus would have known his words. You need to understand that. He would have known these words. He might have known these promises. But he did not understand them. He was not living in that power. And this is the heart cry of every Christian I know. We do not merely want to go through the motions. We do not want to live in our own energy. We desire to live by the law and the power of the Spirit. To know the life and the power of the Spirit at work within us. Don't we? The Spirit is there to cleanse, to renew, to change, to sanctify, to transform. This is the spiritual life that has to follow spiritual birth. And when we're ready for that, when we desire that, when we're hungry for that, Jesus says we're ready to experience the kingdom. Remember that simple little song? For each one of the Spirit of the living God, Fall afresh on me. Remember that song? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Take me, melt me, mold me, fill me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. It is really singing that in our heart. Just on our own some days, quietly. That's the, that's the power of the kingdom. Another qualification. We're ready to experience the kingdom when we turn from the world systems of values. Here's another unless. You find it in Matthew 18. At that time, Jesus, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called the little child, had them stand among them. He said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples wanted to know who was the greatest. Somehow they thought this would give the person status or power in the group. He'd get a badge that says, I'm number one. That would make him feel more important than all others. But Jesus turns them in a new direction. He takes them on a U-turn mentally. He says, unless you change your thinking about, about priorities, you are not ready to experience the kingdom. He uses a little child. His point is that the child represents dependence. That's the issue. The child is dependent on parents for food, for shelter, for care, for home. The child is dependent. The sin in our hearts is always the sin of independence from God. We think, like Adam, we can do it ourselves. We can make it on our own. So Jesus calls us in a new and different direction. You see, grace comes through humility. Leadership comes through service. And unless we do some radical thinking, making a U-turn in our minds about life, we are not, says Jesus, we are not ready for the kingdom. And so when we come to the place that what we are redefining about what is important, what greatness is all about, why we cannot live without God, then we're qualified, says Jesus, to enter the kingdom, to take this risk. And invite the reign and the rule of God to come in us. Then, then, we are ready to receive what the reign of God is all about. One last idea this morning. We are ready to experience the kingdom when we will let go of our good 
to experience God's best. Those are truths that we have to understand, but it may be the hardest of all, I think, to live out in our lives. This comes from a well-known story. The, the word unless is not here, but the idea is. If you want to follow it in the Bible, it's Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And I'll just summarize quickly. It's the story of what we call the rich young ruler. There's a young man who came to Jesus and says, What do I do to inherit eternal life? Perhaps the ultimate question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And in some dialogue, Jesus says, Well, tell me what you've got and what you've done. The young man tells him. Jesus says, You've got to give that up. You've got to give all of that away. Because if you don't do that, unless you do that, you're not going to enter the kingdom. What is Jesus getting at? Simply this. All of us have things in our lives that we hold on to as being precious. We sung that in one of our songs again this morning. I forget which one it was. Things that we work for all of our lives. And this young man had achieved, like many people, financial security. Maybe for somebody else, there's degrees and diplomas hanging on their office wall. Saying, these are all of the trophies that I have out of my life. There's nothing wrong with these kinds of things. Don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand Jesus. But what if these things are the very things that prevent us from knowing all that God has for us? Then we are faced with a hard choice. German philosopher Goethe says that the good is the greatest enemy of the best. Think about that. Think about that in your life. The good. All that's good that I've gathered and, and stored up good is the greatest enemy of the best. It can be painful and costly to let these things go. But it may be even more costly to hold on to them. It costs us in terms of experiencing the kingdom of God. And Jesus confronts us with a kingdom choice. It's this, are we willing to let go of what is our good? To gain and to experience what is God's best. What might that be for you? What might that be for me? When Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, he, he lists all of the things that he has done in his life. He was a Pharisee and, and educated. and teach, His teacher was a man called Gamaliel. And all kinds of really good stuff. And Paul says, I have to consider these things as loss. As garbage. For the sake of knowing Jesus. When you track that little word lost, you find it's used again in the book of Acts and the story of a shipwreck where they had gathered money and they had bought cargo and they were going to make a fortune as the, the ship reached Rome. And then it hit a storm. And they said, we had, to guard, we had to regard the cargo as lost. We had to throw it over the side. We had to jettison it. You can hold on to it, but you'll sink. Or you can let it go and you will live. And that's what Paul says. I was holding on to all of this stuff. Good stuff. Nothing wrong with it. But it was taking me down. And I had to jettison it out of my life. So that I might know Jesus. That, folks, is the kingdom risk. It's the risk to believe that God has something better for us that we cannot see. Which we will not experience until we let go of what we are holding on to in our lives. The kingdom is a risk. It's a hard choice to let go of what we can see. When I was a young man of 23 and had all my degrees and all that stuff, and um, a church in Scotland was saying, would you like to come and be our pastor? 
There was a church and there was a parsonage and there was a home and a new wife. All kinds of things. And our parents lived there. That's what we could see. Were we willing to let go of all of that? And step on a plane for what we could not see in an earthly sense. So here's some kingdom questions for us as we close. Is there an area in my life where I've been faking it? I've been playing games and playing just pretend. The kingdom says to you and to me this morning, we need to stop playing games. We need to be authentic. Isn't it an area of my life where I need to open my life in a fresh way to the life-changing power of the Spirit? And think of that little chorus, Spirit of the Living God. As I just stand here at BCBC, would you fall afresh on me? Is there some area in my life where I need to make a U-turn? And find a new set of values of what really is important and put my sense in a fresh dependence upon God. Do I need to let go of something which is good? It's good. Yet it might be holding me back from experiencing God's best. All this and more is the risk of the kingdom. So 40 years ago, Harriet and I stood in an airport just outside Glasgow. Our bags were packed. We had a suitcase each. The announcement came that it was time to board the plane for Toronto. My dad, who has since passed away, was not a very emotional person in all of his life with us. But my dad simply gave us a hug and said, if it doesn't work out, swallow your pride. Come on home. We never went home. Because we were looking for something new. We wanted to experience more than we had. And there's no way back. You see, the other side of risk is reward. That's the reward of the kingdom. The reward of knowing the grace of God. The reward of knowing the power of God to experience how God wants us to live. And when you meet the qualifications and enter the kingdom, I will tell you, when you taste the kingdom, what Jesus wants for your life, there is no way back.